Welcome to the last and final episode of Through the Looking Glass, Spina Bifida in Anatomy and Physiology. This is your host, Katie, and what a bittersweet moment this is for me. Through this journey, we have explored various parts of the human body, outside and inside, from the integumentary system, cellular level organizations, the skeletal system, joints, muscular system, nervous system, endocrine system, and cardiovascular system, we have basically covered it all. But we still have two more topics today that we'll be covering, the respiratory system and the urinary system. These two are actually great last two topics to finish the series on. And I am proud to announce that we will be interviewing two special guests. These two, doc- these two are doctors who I'll be interviewing. The first being a pulmonologist and the next being a urologist. We wanted to save these special interviews for last and hope you enjoy. Shall we get started? For our first special guest of the series, I'm going to be introducing you to Dr. Julia. Dr. Julia is a pulmonologist who can help us break down the respiratory system and especially its involvement with spina bifida patients. So, are you guys ready to meet her? Oh, here she is now in the studio. Welcome, Dr. Julia, and thank you so much for coming down to conduct this interview with me. I have lots to ask. First, could you please tell me a little bit about your area of work and what you do? What exactly is a pulmonologist? Hi, Katie, and thanks so much for having me. I'm a pulmonology specialist of internal medicine or pediatrics specifically dedicated to studying and diagnosing problems in the respiratory system. These include the lungs and other organs whose function is to help you breathe properly. Pulmonologists can also continue specialties in their career by specifically managing certain conditions or concentrating on definitive patient stats. These subfields within the study of pulmonology consist of sleep-disordered breathing, critical care medicine, interstitial lung disease, obstructive lung disease, lung transplantation, neuromuscular disease, and interventional pulmonology. Interesting. I had no idea how wide the range of subspecialties there are in the medical field, especially ones you can build off of, which in turn leading to a whole different area of study. Great to know, doctor. Now, since we are a podcast all about spina bifida, do tell me, what kind of respiratory problems do patients with SB experience? As a pulmonologist, I can say that as of now, we are still in the beginning stages of discovering exactly how and why some patients with spina bifida are prone to illnesses of the respiratory system. But what we have found in these patients is that scoliosis, Chiari brainstem compression, or weak abdominal or chest muscles can hurt one's breathing capacity. Specifically, obstructive and central sleep apnea are very common conditions that arise as a result of spina bifida and can lead to long-term damage to the heart and cause extreme daytime sleepiness. Wow, I never thought about the consequences that spina bifida can have on one's breathing. But here's the thing, I still don't understand how this happens in the body. Let's zoom in on sleep apnea and how it affects spina bifida patients, especially in the respiratory system. What are the inner workings? Give the audience a brief overview of the relationship between the two, if you would, please. Sleep apnea can be caused by an array of medical health problems, including those with spina bifida. Abnormal sleep breathing can be seen in connection to spina bifida-related conditions, such as hydrocephalus, Chiari 2 malformation, syringomyelia, and myelomeningocele. Children with irregular breathing patterns are progressively more comprised than adolescents without spina bifida. With that being said, these children acquire breathing difficulties while they are asleep as opposed to when they are awake. This occurs mostly in a part of the sleep cycle known as REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement, where some of the respiratory muscles are most relaxed. Thus, in children with spina bifida, their muscle tone is generally very low and many of the respiratory muscles, along with those in the upper airway, which causes obstructed sleep in REM. 
I should also mention that REM sleep is the part of the sleep cycle that is the most fundamental for healthy brain function. Therefore, if someone keeps waking up each time they fall into REM sleep, they are missing out on the most important sleep of all. And interestingly enough, the average baby spends around 25% of sleep in REM sleep. Thus, the older the child gets, the less they are at risk for sleep apnea-related breathing problems. Okay, so everything's starting to come together for me, and I hope it is for the audience as well. What you're saying is that during childhood, children with spina bifida have, are a lot more prone to breathing problems due to the sleep cycle, especially during REM sleep, which babies spend a quarter of their time in. Thus, as they get older, the risk of this decreases. That's great to know, because not only do these patients suffer from physical malformations, but are also vulnerable to their body's inner pulmonary complications, even while they're sleeping. Great to keep in mind. So, could you please now discuss what specific ailments can occur from sleep apnea as a result? That's exactly right. Studying and recording these patients with spina bifida and their sleep cycle is a very important part to understanding why these respiratory problems occur. And yes, I'd love to explain for you what specifically can happen to the respiratory system as a result of this problem in the sleep. One complication that occurs is a condition called central hypoventilation. This is a disorder of the autonomic nervous system that affects the breathing. This, especially during sleep, causes the person to hypoventilate, thus resulting in a shortage of oxygen and a buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood. Secondly, obstructive apneas can occur, which causes the breathing to repeatedly stop and start during slumber. This type of apnea occurs when your throat muscles intermittently relax and block your airway during sleep. Although this may sound very scary, many times people can't feel this while sleeping unless they have a partner or family member noticing excessive snoring. This is the, one of the main warning signs. Thirdly, central sleep apneas is another complication that can result. Central sleep apnea occurs because your brain doesn't send proper signals to the muscles that control your breathing. And finally, a combination of the obstructive apnea and central apnea can also be the result. What happens inside of the body when a person is having these breathing problems during sleep? The oxygen level drops too low, they will wake up so that he or she has more control over their breathing and can get more oxygen again. What are the physical symptoms the body experiences as a result of sleep apnea? Night symptoms of obstructive apnea may include, but are not limited to, snoring, blue spells, restlessness, and perspiration. Daytime symptoms can also arise from sleep apnea. These include, but are also not limited to, weakness, sleepiness, poor appetite, generally low concentration span, and the decline of grades in school. Now, knowing this, how do pulmonologists test for such conditions such as sleep apnea? Mainly sleep studies or polysomnography are conducted. To further explain, this is an investigation of a person's sleep for 24 hours in a medical facility. Within these studies, various aspects are looked into. These include brainwave patterns, muscle activity, heart rate, airflow through the nasal passage, and oxygen levels. Sleep studies have always fascinated me. I think I have every question under the sun that I could think of, but before we move forward with the next interview, I'd like to ask you one last important question that I want to wrap up your segment with. How do you treat sleep apnea? Specifically, what can you do as a pulmonologist to actively help these patients? If it is discovered that the patient has a high level of abnormal breathing and they are waking up multiple times on the hour, 
The first treatment is generally to remove the tonsils as well as the adenoids. Adding on, if the obstructive apnea furthers after the removal of the tonsils and adenoids, the treatment of nasal continuous positive airway pressure is put into high priority. This is beneficial to the nasal passage by helping keep the airway open. Wow, a pulmonologist has a lot of important jobs that plays a key role in treating conditions that involve the respiratory system. Thank you so much for providing me and our audience with this fascinating information on pulmonology and spina bifida. You're very welcome. It's been a pleasure sharing all this information that I have to offer. The last special guest that we have in the studio today is urologist Dr. Megan, and here she is. Hi, Dr. Megan. I am very interested in learning about your field of work and how it connects to patients with spina bifida. First, could you please tell our audience what a urologist is and what they do in this field of work? Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. And yes, I would love to inform the audience about what I do. In order for you guys to get the most out of this interview, I want to first briefly go over the function of the urinary tract system. After all, it is my area of expertise. Let's first start with the parts of the urinary system. The urinary tract system is made up of two kidneys, two ureters, the bladder, and the sphincter muscle. Specifically speaking, this muscle runs the show where it oversees the flow of urine as well as the urethra in turn delivering the urine to outside of the body. Secondly, let's consider, uh, consider the kidneys. The kidneys are used as a type of filtration system for the blood as well as construct urine. In turn, the urine that was made travels from the kidneys to the bladder via channels called ureters. When the ureters and bladder are simultaneously bonded, one-way valves exit in order to halt the urine from traveling towards the opposite direction and into the kidneys. Additionally, bl the bladder is now carrying this urine and subsequently releasing it by the way of urethra every 120 minutes or so. In a conventionally functioning urinary tract system, when the urine fills up the bladder, it expands itself in order to store continuous amounts of urine at a low bladder pressure. How does your bladder know when it's full? You may be asking yourself now. Well, the same as you would know when your stomach tells you it's full. A message is transmitted to the brain. Speaking of which, these signals from the brain then communicate with the sphincter muscle, advising it to soften as the bladder muscle simultaneously contracts. This is so the bladder can empty itself. On average, someone can wait until it's right, it is the right time for them to empty their bladder due to the body and brain's fascinating mystery of communication. Wow, I'm sure many of us wish our significant others had these kind of communication skills that our brain has with the body, but unfortunately we can't have it all. So let's move forward, and I want to ask you, what do you do as urologist, Dr. Megan? Be more specific with me. Very good point indeed, Katie. In my field of work, I am a clinician that specializes in the conditions of the urinary tract system that I just gave you a brief synopsis on. Something you may not know about me and those in my field of study is that I also work with the male reproductive system. Patients are typically sent to me with a referral from their PCP, or primary care physician, who are under the suspicion that they may require a urologist opinion or treatment plan due to afflictions of the bladder, urethra, ureters, kidneys, as well as the adrenal glands. As a urologist that specializes in pediatrics as well, we are, are taught that in this job, our goals are as followed. One, is to make sure that the kidneys are working well and prevent damage. Two, to help the child empty the bladder as effectively as possible. And three, to help the child stay dry throughout the day and night. I just loved how you explained in detail how the urinary process works. Now I can see exactly why doctors would be referring patients to, especially with their urinary concerns. You're definitely the person for the job. Thank you for that mental picture that you so thoughtfully painted. 
Moving on to the star of the show, spina bifida, could you now enlighten our viewers on the correlation between the urinary system and spina bifida? More specifically speaking, let's gear our center of attention towards the infant and adolescent population with SB. Yes, I sure can. Unfortunately, in the past, kids who had spina bifida were getting frequent urinary tract infections leading to life-threatening kidney disease. Fortunately, as of late, urological treatment plans for kids who have spina bifida has made a turnaround for the better. In doing so, our focus is to prevent the kidney disease from beginning in the first place. And in doing so, we have made generous advancements in helping patients all around the globe. Those sound like some big steps for the medical field. Well done. Now, with that being said, how are these children with spina bifida being affected internally when it comes to their urinary tract system? That's a great question and the gateway to the topic I want to talk about next. The kidney and bladder functions of children with spina bifida. Typically, the majority of infants who are born with spina bifida have full kidney function, but it is important to understand that perfectly functioning kidneys can backtrack and actually reverse into a variety of urinary problems for the child. One of these common afflictions is what we call neurogenic bladder. Remember how we just discussed communication between the brain and the body that tells the bladder when it's full? Well, within the neurogenic afflicted bladder, the child's mind and body communication is not functioning as it should be, thus causing the child to typically be completely unknowing to the fact that their bladder is full and many times can't even empty the bladder as well. If the bladder is not emptying in the correct manner, thus evoking conditions such as urinary tract infections and impairment in the kidneys. In my studies, I came across a statistic that many of you may be completely unaware of, and that is about 5% of kids who have spina bifida can go to the restroom and empty their bladders without requiring any help. I found this to be especially interesting that so much of our day we spend using the bathroom without thinking can be such a struggle for others. So what you're saying is that 95% of SB kids are unable to successfully use the bathroom without help? Wow, that's such a high percentage. Hopefully, as studies and research progresses, we can bring that number way down. You have all this knowledge and experience with SB kids in urinary problems, but how do you test for them? And what kind of things are you looking for within these tests? Children with spina bifida are in need of consistent and plentiful assessment and monitoring of the urinary tract system. Some of these tests include a urinalysis and urine culture, which checks for infection, various blood tests to evaluate the kidney's function ability, renal and bladder ultrasounds, and urodynamic studies. Within these assessments, you can think of us as an investigator looking for clues to solve the crime, or in this case, to figure out the best treatment plan possible for the patient. Some things that we look for and find within testing is urinary tract infections, vesicouric ureteral reflux, which is where urine has backed up from the site of the bladder through the ureters and onto the kidneys, hydronephrosis, the enlargement of kidneys due to the blockage of urine, and finally incontinence, where the child is unable to get through the day without accidents, causing them to unknowingly urinate. This is not only a physical problem for the child, but can affect their self-esteem due to embarrassment and feelings of shame. I can't imagine. That must be extremely hard for patients out there whose kids are not only physically impacted but mentally impacted by their inability to have a normal functioning bladder. This leads to my next question. What treatment options do you offer for children who suffer from problems in their urinary tract? Like for most things, various ages mean different treatment plans as well as the severity of the problem. 
Some recommendations that I may advise according to carefully examined case-by-case basis are first off, the insertion of a catheter. A catheter is a gentle tube placed into the bladder which assists in fully emptying the urine. This is a multi-beneficial procedure that intercepts the start of an infection, decreases excess stress on the bladder, and helps prevent any leakage throughout the day. Next, I can also prescribe various medications that aid in the healing of an infection. These medications include but are not limited to bladder relaxants, as well as medication that lessens or stops excess bladder leakage. Our final and last case scenario for a treatment plan when medications and catheterizations are not effective to the child, as we hoped, is a surgical intervene. For our surgical procedures, it is important to know that some are only temporary fixes, but some of those are permanent as well. Specifically, these surgeries can treat reflex, enlarge the bladder, improve sphincter function, or find alternative methods other than the urethra to empty the bladder. The number of options that the medical field comes up with to treat not only this condition, but many others, always shocks me as the years pass and the medical field advances. With specialists like you in the world, it really gives me hope for the future of spina bifida, especially for the little ones out there. And I'm sure our audience out there feels exactly the same way too. Thank you so much for joining the podcast today and helping us further in the journey of understanding SB. We appreciate you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Me and my two co-creators, Megan and Julia, would like to thank you for tuning in and hopefully you have enjoyed our podcast. We have worked hard over this semester to provide you with the best experience possible and hope we were successful in doing so. I also should add the fact that I know more about spina bifida than pretty much anything else right now. And it's not, I know it's not something that doesn't really come up in your everyday life, but I'm certainly waiting for the moment it comes into conversation in the real world so I can show off my knowledge. Before I leave, I want to add a little something about spina bifida on how it not only educated me on the anatomy and physiology aspects of the condition, but it also took me on a personal journey throughout this process. For example, during my research, I would come across many personal stories on spina bifida that I couldn't help myself but to click the link and read about. They really touched me emotionally and made me glad that I had the ability to learn so much about the condition. I've learned that it's much more than a condition, actually. It's a community of people who are banded together, who want to educate others and encourage those to ask questions. Whether or not you may look different or have varying intellectual capabilities in comparison to others around you, we are all human and want to be treated as anyone else. I would like to leave you with a piece of writing that I came across from a mother who's raising a child with SB. This was advice from her giving other parents who may have children with spina bifida or expecting a child with spina bifida to realize within their life when their child is growing up. This is the quote. If I knew then what I knew now, I would not worry nearly as much about the extent of his disabilities. I know now that no matter how many times the child's doctors may tell you he will not do this or that, your child's main goal in life will be to prove to everyone that they can do it. Do not assume that your child cannot do something. Assume that they can. You do not want to look back and realize that with a little bit of hope and faith, he could have accomplished anything. We are going to leave it at that, and that's a wrap for the series. Thanks again for your time, and hope you enjoyed learning about spina bifida as much as we have. (laughs) 